Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the Humboldt Lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, and hear a tale so grim, disturbing, and bizarre. It defies comprehension. A story of vampires, antique coffins, of religious fervor twisted unrecognizable by suicide packs, incest, homicide, and brutality the likes of which you've never seen. The story of a man who created a harem of vampire slaves by impregnating his own daughters and nieces. And in the end, that a family annihilation that left nine dead, including three infants and four children, in a murder scene so ghastly it left experienced and hardened cops shaken to their core and weeping like babies. This is the story of Marcus Wesson the Vampire King of Fresno, and the Wesson Family Massacre. Marcus Dellen Wesson was born in Kansas City on August 22, 1946, the eldest child of Carrie and Ben Wesson's four children. Ben had served in the Army during World War II where he was injured and received a small monthly pension. But because of his habit of drinking the money away, the family was often evicted and moved frequently across Kansas and Missouri, multiple cities in California, including Los Angeles, Milpitas, and San Jose, as well as Washington State. By most accounts, Marcus's father, Ben Wesson, was a violent alcoholic. But it was his mother, Carrie, who was the disciplinarian of the house and would often use a switch, belt, or extension cord to administer punishment. She was also a religious fanatic. She conducted intense family Bible studies with the children and composed volumes of her own spiritual writings practices Marcus would also go on to perform, though in his own disturbing and bizarre manner. Marcus's mother, Carrie, spent over a decade postulating on what to expect in the end times, voraciously reading the writings of the Seventh-day Adventist prophet Ellen G. White, which emphasized the end times and the second coming of Christ. As a child, Marcus had a severe stuttering problem that he was able to overcome, and his siblings remember him as a caring and thoughtful child who'd often bring home wounded, stray animals and nurse them back to health. Once even bringing back a dog so ailing, his mother thought the poor thing was dead. But Marcus assured her he could hear a heartbeat, 
and spoon-fed it milk, slowly reviving the creature back to health. Aww, that's much different than most of the cases that we cover, thankfully. Yes, very thankfully. <laughs> so uh, Marcus attended the Samuel Eyre High School in San Jose, California, just south of San Francisco. San Jose is the capital of Silicon Valley, and today one of the richest cities in the world. Even back then, it was very affluent. Although Marcus was allowed to attend a graduation ceremony at his high school, he never actually received his diploma and did not graduate. Marcus's father, Ben, was reportedly too drunk to attend any of his children's school functions, from sports to graduation ceremonies. He became involved in a homosexual relationship with his own 18-year-old nephew, and the two even shared a cottage together for some time. Other male family members also reported acts of molestation by Ben. Although they're just speculation, rumors abound that Marcus himself was molested by his father. While there is no indication that Marcus himself experimented with homosexuality, he carried a deep fascination with bisexuality and especially incest, encouraging his own daughters to perform sex acts on each other in front of him, and writing in his spiritual manifesto that the first human relationship was a homosexual marriage between the creator and the first man, writing that, quote, the gays and lesbians of today join together physically, just as the master and man join together, spirit metaphysically, in the past. Even as a youngster, Marcus would say he believed in polygamy, though it went against the church doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventists, and he'd tell his friends that he was going to have a lot of children one day. Although Marcus did not follow the doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church he was raised in, he maintained the church's dietary restrictions and observed the Sabbath on Saturday. At 19, Marcus joined the army and spent two years as a specialist for medic in the 695th Medical Ambulance Company. Though the Vietnam War was raging at the time, he was stationed in Europe and would see no action. He was honorably discharged in 1968 and moved back to San Jose, where he began a relationship with Rosemary Solorio, a woman 13 years older than him, who had eight children from a previous marriage. Marcus moved in with Rosemary and immediately took over control of the family, administering violent and brutal discipline, dictating what they were to eat, how they were to dress, and hitting Rosemary's son Jesse in the face with a belt when he dared to question his authority. In March of 1971, Rosemary would give birth to Marcus's first child, a son named Adair. But Rosemary wasn't enough for Marcus and his polyamorous and incestual ways. No, Marcus had his eye on Rosemary's daughter, Elizabeth. He began grooming and molesting her when she was just eight years old. And by the time Elizabeth was 14, 
Marcus had a full-on sexual relationship with the girl, telling Rosemary he wished to marry her daughter. Rosemary agreed to the marriage, but tried to keep it a secret from the rest of the family, something she was unable to do when Elizabeth became pregnant. So disturbing. Very. Rosemary's son, Jesse, confronted Marcus over this, and Marcus beat the boy with an electrical cord so badly it left bruises and welts across his back. And the incident was even reported to the police by another family member. Realizing that he could be arrested, Marcus made a deal with Jesse. Marcus would leave the family if Jesse agreed not to tell the police he'd beaten him. Jesse agreed, just happy to get this violent creep out of their house. Marcus left, leaving his son Adair behind, but he took the family van with him, as well as Elizabeth. And in 1974, Marcus Wesson married Elizabeth. She was only 15 years old. Marcus was 27. And by the end of the year, they had their first child, Dorian. And in the coming years, they would have four more children, Adrian, Kiani, Sabrina, and Stefan, who died at birth. She would go on to have 11 children in total with Marcus by the time she was only 26. They moved into a home in San Jose, and Marcus worked as a commercial bank teller for Wells Fargo, where he wore suits to work and maintained a well-groomed appearance. But at some point, he grew fed up with the conservative work environment, and he quit his job vowing to never work again, feeding off the beast instead by living on welfare. He started growing dreadlocks and said he wouldn't cut them until the return of Jesus Christ. Marcus taught a very strict and misogynistic interpretation of the Bible, where men are kings of their household and demanded absolute obedience. Well, that's kind of the problem with the Bible, you know. You can use it for whatever purpose you want. Twist the words and meanings in any direction to manipulate people. And twist those words he did. Marcus somehow got it in his head that Jesus Christ was a vampire. That's right. It's a stretch, but Jesus did rise from the dead and tell his followers to drink his blood. And that Jesus was a vampire did get mentioned in HBO's True Blood. And man, I loved Midnight Mass. Some great hypocritical Christian vampires waving crosses and being all evil. Though I think that was meant to have an atheist slant to it, showing how religion is just a bunch of malarkey and vampires somehow prove it i mean i don't know i think that's what it's saying but whatever it was saying if it was even saying anything it it's a lot of fun great show it was a great show a lot of fun but marcus wasn't having fun with it like mike flanagan was in midnight mass marcus sought to create a pure vampire race through incest 
and would eventually name one of his incestuous children Jiva, a combination of the words Jesus and vampire. He had secondary vampire names for all of his family members. And Marcus Wesson's vampire name for himself was G. Vam Mark Suspire, a combination of the words Marcus, Jesus, and vampire. <clears throat> Douchebag. <clears throat> <laughs> and there were times his children and wives were not permitted to go out into the daylight, and often they wore all black. They wore all black? Red flag, right there. Clearly. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> Me neither. I wouldn't do it for like 30 years straight either, never. for sure. Not my whole life. <laughs> it's not a face, mom. And Marcus would go on to write a thousand page screed he called a Bible for vampires. In it were ancient vampires named Sedana and Marshi. Names he would use for his own children as well. Children he would have sleep atop antique coffins. His vampire Bible entitled In the Night of the Light for the Dark. You like that, Sarah? <laughs> it was to be the foundation of a new religion mixing vampirism and Christianity. The screed is broken up into four sections. The Dark... Of the light in the dark of the night. That was that's a that's a tongue twister right there. It is. Of the light in the dark of the night. The manifestation of it all. And the lost seed of righteousness. It begins quote The birth of the great being vampire, as told by that being to his fallen angel. Hmm. There are some very, very telling lines in that tome. It's quite haunting and revealing. Sections that are, frankly, quite terrifying, knowing what's going to happen. And listen to this, fellow freaks. I, vampire of the dark, will not fail. My spiritual bite must deceive all. My pretense of love must convince all of right. I must live, love itself, and be love to perpetuate my evil among man. I will triumph in my quest, for it is my essence. Fuck. <laughs> this dude is fucking evil, and he knows it. Right? Oh. It gets worse, too. Just listen. If you dare... As this scumbag describes his spiritual, vampiric reproduction method. The master's first wives had to be daughters to purely reproduce himself in an evil generation. Thus, in incest, one produces the seed of perfection of one's self. Oh, 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 stop. No, that's disgusting. I believe... I think that's what his publisher said Okay, when he yeah. sent him the manuscript in 2003. He said that and it was, quote unquote, incoherent. Incoherent is being nice. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Sarah, we've studied modern day vampires before. People who either believe they're vampires 
or pretend to be vampires or behave in a way that makes them appear as vampires. We did an entire episode on them. Now, what do you make of this? Because he doesn't have the so-called Renfield syndrome or the hemotolangia paraphilia, that bloodlust we saw in John Crutchley. He doesn't even seem to be in the blood at all. He's just like a Rastafarian hippie version of the Kentucky teenage vampires, just, you know, LARPing it. Do you think there is a pathology here, in your opinion? Or is he just using all of this as a means toward an end? Namely, his desire for incest and pedophilia. I go back and forth on this because, huh. yeah, when asked to make an assessment of his particular vampire mythology and evaluate whether or not it's pathological and delusional or calculating and manipulative, I'm just torn. On one hand, the ideology here is obviously self-serving. Marcus is borrowing concepts and ideology from literature and pop culture with all this vampire stuff, as well as with different religious faiths like his mother was doing. And he's compiled all this doctrine together to validate and justify his own abusive behaviors. But then, as a clinician, I'm looking for evidence that Marcus believed any of his own theology outside of situations where he used it to facilitate the incest and pedophilia. But obviously, it's difficult to pin that down without having interacted with him. Instead, I ended up looking into firsthand accounts from his surviving children to gain insight into what his mentality might have been. There's an interview with ABC News where his surviving son, Dorian, describes Marcus as narcissistic, but emphasizes that Marcus truly was delusional as well as, quote, psychotic, just mentally not there. And in this interview, it's the opinion of three surviving sons, Adrian, Serafino, and Dorian, that Marcus genuinely believed that he was God. The youngest surviving daughter, Gypsy, who currently goes by Evelyn, has said similarly. She says that while her father's in prison now, he's still living in a false reality and believes that his family still loves and supports him, despite evidence to the contrary. Likely then, although the vampire-based religious delusions were still used to co-sign his unspeakable abuse, they could have also been beliefs that Marcus genuinely put his faith in. Um, straight out of the DSM-5, delusions are defined as false beliefs, based on incorrect inferences about external reality that persist despite evidence to the contrary. Additionally, it goes on to say, quote, delusions can be characterized as persecutory, a belief that someone's going to be harmed by another individual, referential, which is the belief that gestures, comments, or environmental cues are personally directed at oneself, grandiose, meaning that the affected individual has a belief that they have exceptional abilities, wealth, or fame, erotomanic delusions, 
believing someone else is in love with them, nihilistic delusions, a conviction that a major catastrophe will occur, or somatic delusions, which is beliefs focused on bodily function or sensation, like Richard Chase. And I think for Marcus, mm-hmm. referential and grandiose of delusions, they both apply to him, especially the delusions of grandiosity, because in my opinion, he's not attracted to the vampire myth because of the blood drinking. He's attracted to the idea that he and by extension, his family are something more than human, uh, something superior. So why not vampires? Why not? I, mean, I love vampires. <laughs> I don't tell my family they're vampires, but I do love them. They probably wouldn't believe you. <laughs> Guess what, kids? We're vampires now. <laughs> Put in your fangs. It's too late to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the Wesson clan, they grew even larger when Elizabeth's sister, who had fallen in the drug addiction, she put Marcus in charge of her seven kids as well. So he's just thinking more dependence, more welfare money. And for a while, the family also took in a young, pregnant, blonde-haired girl named Ilabel that they met at a Seventh-day Adventist church in the little beach town of Santa Cruz. Of course, Marcus soon had a sexual relationship with her, and he asked her to be one of his polygamous wives. But Illabel, she felt he wanted her to be more of a servant, a handmaiden to Elizabeth, and that she'd never be an equal to her. And so Illabel left the family. Good call, honestly. Yeah. And Marcus would go on to name one of his daughters after her, a daughter that he would murder. And at the murder trial, 25 years after last seeing each other, Illabel would take the stand and call Marcus Wesson one of the greatest influences in her life. Aw, isn't that special? One of the greatest influences in her life. This man who would rape and murder his own daughters, trying to create a pure vampire race. (laughs) And as the 70s turned into the 80s, Marcus Wesson became more and more isolated and protective of his family, forcing his children to stay indoors, espousing the importance of vegetarianism. He forced his own family to live on beans, while he himself would still go ahead and eat meat. But one area of doctrine he did maintain was that he never drank alcohol or took drugs. Red flag, right there. He doesn't need alcohol and drugs. (laughs) I am alcohol and drugs. Uh, I don't know. It might have helped him. Maybe. (laughs) It can't make it worse. Right? (laughs) Wesson bought a sailboat around this time that he planned on converting into a living space. As we'll see later on, Marcus Wesson loved boats, and there's a culture of boat-dwelling people in coastal California. I actually know several people who have houseboats in the Bay Area. So you know, man, fuck, with the cost of rent these days, it's actually a, a really cool choice. But this little episode ended up landing Marcus in some hot water. 
Marcus bought the vessel for $14,000, paying it off in monthly installments of $500. And when the welfare department was informed of this, Marcus was convicted of welfare fraud and perjury and ended up spending six months in prison. But you can't keep a good man down. And Wesson was somehow able to then purchase land in the remote Santa Cruz Mountains. And he built a prefabricated house on the property. But after failing to stay up to date on that mortgage, he lost the land and the house. But undeterred, he then struck up a deal with a local landowner to rent to own a remote quarter acre of land along Summit Road, deep in the wilderness, where they would occasionally camp throughout the late 80s and early 90s. The family stayed on the move, living a nomadic existence, roaming from Tamales Bay, north of San Francisco, down to the streets of San Jose and the beaches of Santa Cruz, where they scrounged for food, dug through dumpsters, and begged for change, bathing in the public restrooms. Marcus would wander about the beaches, wearing a long brown cloak and carrying a staff, preaching his vampiric interpretation of the Bible. One Santa Cruz local described Marcus as a frustrated wannabe cult leader that no one would listen to. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, you know, I think right here we should say something real quick about Santa Cruz a place I've spent a lot of time in and I really adore. First off, vampires. As many Murder Coaster listeners probably know, Santa Cruz is where the classic horror movie Lost Boys was filmed, and the fictional town in the movie is very much based on the real town, Santa Cruz. One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. <laughs> yes, such a good line. Love it. But uh, on a serious note, Santa Cruz was the perfect place for freaks like the Wessons to blend in. It's filled with hippies, surfers, and punk rockers, and weirdos of all types. I told you, it's a great place. Like, for instance, Santa Cruz, it was the hotbed or one of the big hotbeds of cannibalists, cannabis, cannibalists. <laughs> Of cannibals? No, no, not. I, I'm sorry, Santa Cruz people. Cannabis legalization in the uh, early days, back when it was just medical. And so, like, George Bush sent the DEA in there and tried to stomp out their little uh, cannabis community that they had going. And the DEA were quite surprised by the activism that ensued. There was demonstrations, protests. People handcuffing themselves, the DEA's cars. Damn. Yeah, those Santa Cruz hippies, they let the fucking feds have it. And the feds actually backed off. Okay. The freaks. Yeah, well, I mean, the California had passed the 215 law. So they're like, well, it's legal in California. It's just, it's still federally illegal. You know, yeah. if if whoever's president wants to send the feds in, they could anytime. Mm. But anyway, um, there's a pervasive level of uh, acceptance and permissibility there to this day you know stroll down the beach or go to the farmer's market and you'll see all kinds of spiritual types 
from new age crystal loving hippies burning sage to like straight up alistair crowley loving adherence of thelema so a dreadlock guy and his gaggle of unschooled children preaching that jesus was a vampire it really wasn't going to raise that many red flags there makes sense yeah and marcus wesson was a master manipulator everyone said so even from his childhood days so he was able to con and twist the liberal aspects of this freedom-loving place for his own benefit basically just hiding in plain sight as other killers had done there as well in the 70s there wasn't just one not just two but three serial killers in santa cruz the notorious edmund kemper who we got to cover one day he's such mm -hmm. a character the uh, second John, time we mentioned him i thought or maybe the third because and then you could talk about he's he's killing people and this other guy killing people at the same exact time mm -hmm. like and they're like yeah it's it's craziness man and then there was also uh and there was john lindley fraser the killer prophet and herbert mullen and this is why santa cruz was called the murder capital of usa in both real life and in the film the lost boys so while it's a fun sunny place you know it's got a boardwalk and rides cool like haunted house everything you know the comic book store from from the lost boys still there uh there's a lingering dark side maybe one day we'll do an episode solely on the strange history and culture of santa cruz mm -hmm. but now let's get back to the story so sarah why don't you tell us about the quote-unquote loving sessions marcus would perform with the young girls why don't i tell us about that why there's lots of reasons why i'm not telling us about <laughs> that do, do i have to I have to. You're the one who thought a true crime podcast will be fun. Do a true crime podcast, they said. It'll be fun, <laughs> they said. I'm having fun. Oh, yeah, obviously. Oh. Oh, I don't okay. have to say this paragraph, oh, though. Okay. I'm going to have to wash out my mouth after this. But if I have to, I will. Okay. Marcus would perform what he called, quote, loving sessions with the young girls, teaching them, again, Quote, the ways to please a man. He gave them rings. He performed weird marriage rituals and he called them his wives. Ugh. Marcus forced Ruby and Kiani to perform sex acts on each other as he watched. Then he had a ceremony after where the girls were married. He even had Ruby write a love letter to Kiani, which read, Quote, to my wonderful sweet wife, always remember that I love you with all my heart. You are a sweet girl, and I don't ever want you to lose that beautiful spirit that surrounds you. Please never forget that I love you. May the Lord always bless you. Love always, Ruby. End quote. Ah, there. <laughs> Did it. You happy? happy yes yeah you did it. that was good good job uh, uh. sometimes we got to do things we don't want to in this podcast but <laughs> we hope that you listeners appreciate what we do for you they don't they're washing <laughs> their own ears out right now <laughs> by 1995 
Kiani, Ruby, and Sophina were all pregnant with Marcus's children. And this is when Marcus decides to move the family deep into the hills on a more permanent level in order to hide the girls' pregnancies. Even a town as liberal and free as Santa Cruz isn't going to take well to the girls in their early teens becoming pregnant with their father's child. It's a bad scene, man. And actually, hippies can be quite judgmental if you want to know the truth. I'm with the hippies on this one. We should I'm judge usually some with things. the hippies. I'm usually with the hippies. Everyone and hippies deserves right. some judgment. <laughs> <laughs> they can be goofy, but they're, they're usually on base. Spot on in this case. But Marcus knew that too. So he moved his wife and 13 children into the mountains. And there, the Wesson clan set to work, installing a foundation and putting up a huge army tent that would serve as their living quarters. Each of the children had their own bunk, and the tent was divided into three sections. One section for the boys, one for the girls, with Marcus and Elizabeth in the large middle section that also served as a living room and kitchen, and this common area had a sink and an icebox. Then the girls began giving birth. First, Kiani bore Ilabel, then Sophina, who bore Jonathan, then Ruby, who bore Aviv. The father on all three birth certificates was listed as unknown. Elizabeth's younger sister, Brandy, who was also with the Wesson clan, knew that she would be next to have a child. Though she had a learning disability and was illiterate, she also wasn't stupid, and she saw the writing on the wall. Marcus had begun to molest her with his loving sessions at the age of seven, instructing her in masturbation and oral sex, and he took her virginity when she was 14, Wesson explaining to her that she would have babies for the Lord. She was now 17, and she did not want to have children with her uncle, so she ran away. She goes back to San Jose to her mother, who this lady's a piece of work, at first scolded her for leaving Marcus and threatened to take her back to him. But she finally relented and let her stay with her in the apartment. And Marcus had his own problems at this point. There were a lot of mouths to feed now and no food. Dumpster diving was only going to get them so far. There wasn't even money for propane to cook with or to heat water. So things there were growing incredibly desperate. Then the owner of the land they were living on died and his son inherited it. There was no written record of the rent to own deal Marcus had had with the man's father. And when the deceased owner's son sold the land, they were forced to move yet again. And Marcus takes the family back to San Jose. They were leaving the seclusion of the Santa Cruz Mountains, as well as the liberal enclaves of the hippie surfer town. It would be much more difficult to hide all the babies, but at least the children could get jobs and bring money home to the family. 
the Wesson clan moved into the upstairs section of a duplex on College Avenue. Tight quarters. But at this point, they were very used to living with each other. The girls got jobs at the local McDonald's and excelled, quickly becoming managers. But Marcus, he was wary and skeptical. He'd accuse the girls of talking to men while at work and would beat them with a small bat about the body where the bruises would be covered by clothing and go unseen at work. He also gave them what he called girl talks. These were lectures where he warned them of the danger of ever leaving the family, making them swear to suicide murder packs if anyone, especially the government, ever tried to separate them. This time, it was Ruby's turn to try to run away. Not returning home from work and staying with friends she'd made at McDonald's. But Marcus was able to track her down, trick her with kindness into the family van, and then beat her into submission with his fists, telling her, You are my wife. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm not going to just let you go out there and be in the world. Let the world destroy you. And sensing he had to get his child harem away from the prying eyes and forces of society, in 1997, Marcus buys a 65-foot decommissioned tugboat named the Sudan, moored 100 feet off the coast by the tiny town of Marshall. Marshall lays 50 miles north of San Francisco on Tomales Bay. There's no cell phone reception, and the locals will tell you that they like it that way. The sign outside the town reads, Population 50. But the official Census Bureau record says it's actually 394. Either way, though, it's very small. There's just a post office and a little general store that claims to serve the best oysters on the planet. I think Eureka, California would like to have a word with them about that. <laughs> I'll test both of them. I, I'm going to go down there. I I've volunteer. driven through it, but I've never eaten oysters at this place. I'm going to go do it. I'll eat oysters anywhere. Hell yeah. Except maybe the gas yeah. station. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on where the gas station is. Right. Good point. Maybe not in a landlocked state. Right. But anyway, Marcus eventually ends up with a few junked boats. There's a 40-foot boat called the Raven. Nevermore. That they use to store clothes and water. And a third boat the locals called the Ark because of the strange wood furniture Wesson had used to decorate it. It was apparently so top-heavy and in such disrepair that locals marveled how it hadn't sunk yet. The Wesson clan had reached 16 when they moved aboard the Sudan. Every evening, the family would row ashore in a small rowboat to empty their toilet waste into the porta potties in the boatyard and fill up large jugs of water. Locals described seeing Marcus Wesson sitting sternly in the front of the boat, his long dreadlocks cascading down his shoulders, while two girls, one on each side, paddled like galley slaves. Some of the children 
found employment at the nearby Marconi Conference Center, which lay about a half mile up the road and was used by high-powered San Francisco executives as a retreat to escape the noisy city and reinvigorate their employees. The girls worked 10-hour days in the dining facility there, where they gained reputations as reliable hard workers. Though one fellow worker thought it was odd how they constantly chattered about the approaching end of the world and polygamy, saying that they were all married to the same man. Living on the Sudan was hard. Rowing into shore every day, fetching water and supplies, and the living quarters were impossibly small for a family of 16. But it gave Marcus what he wanted, isolation from the world. It was here where he really started putting in the work on his magnus opus, In the Dark of the Light for the Dark. Oh, I'm sorry. In the Night of the Light for the Dark. So many words. I keep expecting you to sing that. How, how would I sing? That you got me thinking. Sounds like a song. In the night of the light for the dark. Sorry. Fuck this. <laughs> I fucking hurt my own ears. Okay. The ship had become his vampiric lair, his castle where he was the master over his concubines who served him and did his bidding, like the weird wives of Dracula. Here, Wesson was the master, and he'd have the girls groom his dreadlocks and scratch beneath his armpits Ew. as he <laughs> as he stretched his 300-pound frame out, listening to them recite poetry they'd written in his honor. Like this little ditty by Ruby that Sarah will perform for you. No. Oh, here we go. Marriage prayer from the lair. May our bloodlines cross. May our sex lines cross. May we be one for eternity. Let our bloodstone give eternal life. Let us serve our master. Stop laughing, Matthew. I'm sorry. What is a sex line? I don't even know what that is. It's a line you shouldn't cross. Oh, well, it's not about (laughs) his armpits, so I don't know. I'm not sure which would be a grosser thing to talk about. You got if you don't laugh, your head will crack open. Yes, it's dangerously close to doing so. Marcus continued his practice of girl talk, preparing them for group suicide and murder as well as his incestual loving sessions. But as the girls grew older, he became more and more weary of them venturing out into the outside world, even though they were one of the only sources of income for the entire family. He grew particularly jealous of Ruby. He'd asked the girls if Ruby was talking to men at the conference center during work. And when Kiani said yes, she had seen Ruby talking to a man backhanded Ruby so hard across the face that a huge bruise instantly bloomed there below her right eye. Ruby said it was right then that she decided she was going to run away again. Ruby's next attempt at freedom is just so sad and heartbreaking. She's able to make it as far as a bus station, but has no money 
and just breaks down into tears. A kind, older woman sees her crying and takes pity on her, buying her a bus ticket and telling her she needs to get to the Amtrak station, but not to worry. She'll make sure there's a ticket waiting for her. Ruby makes it to the Amtrak station, but when she gets there, there's no ticket for her. She's stuck and, again, begins to break down into tears. But the Amtrak ticket agent tells her, let me see if there's something I can do for you. And the agent comes back with a ticket to Fresno. So Ruby makes it. She goes to her mother and... Rosemary tells her she has to go back. Ruby tells her mother that Marcus beats her, rapes her, that he's the father of her child, that he rapes all the girls and they've all had children by him, including his own daughters, that he thinks he's a vampire and is a truly evil man. But her pleas make no difference. Rosemary tells her, she has to go back to him. And seeing no other option, with nowhere else to go, Ruby does return. Ugh, what the fuck? <laughs> so, Marcus goes to Fresno to get Ruby, leaving the children alone on the Sudan. And while he's gone, one of the boys sees something terrifying on the docks. It's a white van. A white van slowly creeping by. The word progressive written in blue down the side. He races up to tell the oldest, Sophina. Five minutes later, the van appears again. This time with two white trucks following it. All of the vehicles bearing the mysterious moniker progressive. Not knowing that Progressive is just the name of an insurance company, the children convince themselves that this is it, that it's actually the government coming to take them away, just as their father had always warned them would happen. They knew what to do. Their father had given them detailed instructions on what to do. He'd lectured long and hard how it was better to be with the Lord than to let the government separate the family. So Sophina retrieves her father's 22 caliber pistol and loads it. She gathers the children together and tells all the ones that can write to compose suicide notes. 16-year-old Gypsy writes, We did this ourselves. It's nobody's fault. We don't want to be separated. Sophina was ready to be the strong soldier her father needed and ran the plan over in her mind, just as her father had taught her. First, she would kill the younger ones by putting the gun in their mouths and squeezing the trigger. Then the older ones would kill themselves. She arranged the children in a circle. They held hands and prayed as Sophina readied herself, gun in hand. But something didn't feel right. She felt she needed some final approval and sent two of the older girls out to call their father. 
Marcus received the call and told him to stop and calmly ordered them to put that stuff away. It's not time yet. Oh, that's that's so chilling, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Just imagine those poor abused children. They're just all alone on this decaying old boat. And they're ready to kill themselves because they saw a white van with writing on it that they didn't understand. Ugh, it, it, it's so disturbing. God, <clears throat> good day to not be a progressive insurance delivery driver. Oh, yeah. That's not a good ad for them, is it? This is very <laughs> bad publicity for them. Progressive. Okay. But uh, Ruby... And I got to say, <clears throat> I really like Ruby. She's a fighter. And in many ways, Ruby's the hero of this sad story. You know, and in 2000, Ruby runs away again. This time with a boyfriend she'd made at McDonald's. And this time, she's not coming back. It's final. She's seriously had enough. But she has to leave her daughter, Aviv, behind. She had to and able to escape, but it tears at her heart. Afterwards, she makes several attempts to get her child back, but Marcus, he isn't having it. He won't let her have her child back, claiming that it's the Lord's child. Sophina, now in her late 20s, meets a man at work, becomes romantically involved, and after a very complicated ordeal, Marcus agrees to let her move out, but like Ruby, she's forced to leave her son Jonathan behind. Unlike Ruby, though, Sophina remained in contact with Marcus, and using Jonathan as a guilt trip, Marcus would often call her and ask for money, telling her that her child needed food. Can she give him a couple hundred bucks for groceries? Such a scumbag. Such a scumbag. But after drawing a little too much attention in the tiny town of Marshall, and by the way, you know you're, you're something, you're weird, and not in a good way. If you're drawing too much attention when you're on a tugboat 100 feet from the shore. But somehow, don't ask me how, Marcus buys a house in Fresno in October of 2003. And this house is a small, flat-roofed building on the corner of the Golden State Freeway and the Union Pacific Railroad tracks, and the family happily moves in. After living in a prefab house built by their vampire leader, an army tent deep in the woods, a tugboat a hundred feet from shore, even a shed at one point, this seems like a pretty conventional place for the Wesson clan. Or maybe we should say the Wesson coven, right? <laughs> I but... was thinking it. <laughs> it wasn't, though. It was, it was zoned for business, not residential. And as soon as the city realized that the family was living in it, they served them with a notice to completely evacuate. Of course, though, Marcus just ignored this. <laughs> in December 2003, Gypsy now 19, also successfully ran away to Las Vegas. Go, Gypsy. Yes. Marcus's daughter and wife. They're not supposed to go together. Marcus's daughter and wife, Kiani, missed her sisters, 
but remained faithful to Marcus. By this point, she'd had two children with her father, Ilabel, now eight, and an infant named Jeva. In December, Kiani wrote in her diary, Gypsy, my sweet sister, it is time for you to come home. I miss you so much. Christ wants you back home, Lou. Don't let the world use you. You are much loved in your home. Gypsy, the time is near. On the next page, she wrote, Ruby, my love forever. You know the time is here for you to return. Come home now. God has a mission for us. Ruby, I know you feel it too. I love you. We will be together as a family soon. So what's going on here? How is she so brainwashed? Is Stockholm Syndrome like a real thing? I mean, she sees the abuse. The rest of the family, they're leaving. They're running away, trying to get the hell out of there any way they can. How does he keep his hold on this poor girl, in your opinion, Sarah? Well, just in case anybody listening at home hasn't heard of Stockholm Syndrome, Stockholm Syndrome is a term that was derived from findings after observation of a very specific case involving a bank robbery in Stockholm. Essentially, in 1973, a bank robbery occurred there in Stockholm, Sweden, and during a six-day standoff with the police, many of those captive bank employees actually developed empathy and an affinity for their captors. Once they were freed, those same bank employees actually refused to testify against the bank robbers in court, and some of them went ahead and started raising money for the defense of the bank robbers. So Stockholm Syndrome is a trauma response that has come to mean identifying with your abuser on some level. It's similar to trauma bonding, which has become part of the dialogue in abuse cases in more recent years. Other symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome mimic those of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And these can include flashbacks, persistent anxiety, nightmares, and trouble concentrating. And post-traumatic stress disorder is typically the condition that victims like these are treated for once they're removed from that abusive situation, as well as issues pertaining to attachment for obvious reasons. And while Stockholm Syndrome and trauma bonding are not in the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, the behaviors and feelings that characterize these abusive relationships can be observed in association with surviving any interpersonal trauma. Trauma binding as a term was coined by Patrick Carnes, who distinguished himself in the field of psychology through his study of trauma and also through his study of sexual addiction, which has been the subject of some criticism. Sexual addiction is also not in the DSM because the findings on it are still not considered sufficient for diagnostic criteria, empirically speaking. But I digress. We're going to talk about trauma bonding. And trauma bonding refers to the emotional bond that develops from recurring patterns of cyclical abuse in incestuous relationships, in cults, and in hostage situations. In trauma bonding relationships, 
there's always a power imbalance and intermittent reinforcement of behavior through reward and punishment. And the bonds are reinforced by terror and unpredictability. In the case of the Wesson family, the children describe being deathly terrified of their father, but they also state in certain situations that he made them feel special and chosen. Long-term victims in trauma bond situations lose their sense of autonomy and independence. So their sense of self just becomes an internalization of their abuser's view of them. Those factors make it hard for them to leave. Even once those victims become aware of their abuse, it still increases the likelihood that the victim will return to the abuser after they leave. In the process of surviving, many of these individuals unintentionally become defined by their horrific circumstances. Their identity in that abusive relationship was the only certainty that they ever had. And as previously mentioned, I did search interviews with some of the surviving children. I found a 2022 interview with the Crimecasters Network, which is a YouTube channel, where Gypsy, who currently goes by Evelyn, and remember, she's the youngest surviving daughter, she spoke with an interviewer named Alyssa Sofios. And interestingly enough, Sofios was also one of the first reporters to attach to this case. Um, she's still friends with Evelyn. The pair says one of the most common questions Evelyn gets as a survivor is, why didn't you leave? And Evelyn said, and I quote, it's taught in you that you can't leave. There is nowhere you can go. And even if you turn to a higher power, he's already taken that higher power and said it's him. So everywhere you go and you turn, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. There's no support. How are you going to walk out? And Evelyn adds that she was so fearful of her father that even the sight of him had her shaking. Those children felt so powerless and were completely under their father's control. Recovering from a lifetime of abuse has been an ongoing saga for all of them. Mm. Well, <clears throat> it's a lot. It is. This this case is a lot. It's it's tough. So uh, it was around this time that Marcus bought 10 large mahogany coffins, as well as a dilapidated limousine and a yellow school bus. He had equipped with a hot tub. And all right, <laughs> this case is a lot, but I have to admit, I kind of dig the idea of having a school bus with a hot tub. <laughs> That's the kind of levity I'm talking about here. Did you see the picture of it? Yeah. It looks pretty cool. He's got the whole back welded off. I don't know. School I mean, bus mine culture. Is, There's mine another is the one. whole situation, right? I definitely yeah. want a school bus with a hot tub in it. All right. Be great for and road oysters. Trips. Yeah. And you oysters. can have as many friends come with you as you want and eat oysters. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And anyway. fuck it. I'd live in a tugboat. That sounds kind of fun. I get seasick, but I'll live in the school bus. You can live in the tugboat. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Marcus bought the coffins from, I'm going to try to pronounce this. Shoot. Dugovics. Dugovics. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Marcus bought the coffins from Dugovics Antiques in Fresno. The owner never forgot the image of the Wesson women, all draped in long black gowns, loading those coffins up, haunted by how spooky he felt it was, and how Marcus never raised a finger to help them. 
Of course he didn't. He's a no. fucking asshole. You know, the Misfits, uh, the band carried coffins around with them. They used them as stage props and would rise up out of them in the beginning of shows. And when they were on the road, they kept them full of beer. So just wanted to throw that there for no reason at all. School bus with a hot tub and coffins full of beer. That's a Fuck party. Yeah, dude. Fuck. And oysters. Dude, <laughs> and I'm, oysters. I'm all about it. Um, the coffins were eventually converted into beds for the youngest children. Oh, that's so sweet. They must have loved that. <laughs> and this all leads us to March 12th, 2004. The family were preparing to go to Washington State to visit Marcus's ailing father. And we're still preparing the school bus, getting it in shape for the big trip north. Not only had the city formally cited the family for living in a building zoned for business only, they'd also served notice that the school bus was violating city code by sitting in the driveway as well. Neighbors had seen the women in long black dresses working on the bus at night with flashlights. Little did the family know that Ruby had been watching them as well. And seeing them preparing to leave California with her daughter, Aviv, had filled her with dread. She had to get her child back. And Sophina felt the same way about her son, Jonathan. Both the children were now seven years old. The so Ruby and Sophina devised a plan. They'd gather all the men from the mother's side of the family, the brothers, uncles, and cousins, and go to Marcus's house on Hammond Avenue. While the men distracted Marcus, Sophina and Ruby would slip in, grab their children, and leave. They'd been careful not to discuss their plan with anyone who might tip Marcus off, and it had worked. When the entourage arrived that afternoon, Marcus had no idea that they were coming. Sophina and Ruby were prepared. They each had their birth certificates for their children, with the father figure marked unknown. So Marcus had no legal claim on the two seven-year-olds. They just wanted to get in and get out with their children as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, it did not go that way at all. Now, Marcus trusted Sophina. Remember, she'd stayed in touch with her stepfather, uncle, husband, vampire guru, and regularly delivered groceries, baby formula, diapers, and money to the family. So it was decided she'd be on the one to slip into the house and retrieve the children. Marcus was working on the bus with Sabrina when they arrived, and no one thought anything of it when Sophina strolled into the house where her son was sitting in the front room in overalls and a plaid button-up shirt. But when Sophina gathered her son up to leave, taking by him by the hand, Rosa appeared and confronted her, demanding to know what she was doing. Then Kiani, now 27, entered the room and a screaming match ensued. As Sophina attempted to leave the house with her son, Rosa seized his other hand and the two began to pull the child back and forth. Rosa was able to pry the child from Sophina, just as Sabrina came barging in, 
clenching her fists in fury and screaming, get the fuck out of my house. And Sophina grabbed a chair to defend herself. Marcus, calm as ever, simply looked in the door and asked, Sophina, what's going on in there? Meanwhile, Ruby had taken to pleading and begging with her uncle and former husband, telling him she just wanted her daughter. Marcus accused her of attempting to kidnap the child, and Ruby said she wasn't leaving without her. The men were wearily edging closer to the house, and Marcus, standing in the doorway, calmly told them to not even think about entering. At 300 pounds, with gray, rope-like dreadlocks cascading past his D's, knees, he uh, made quite an intimidating sight. Inside the house, Sabrina, Lise, and Rosa began to gather all the children and herd them into a back bedroom as Sophina screamed and pleaded with them, Sabrina calling her a fat bitch and demanding she leave her house. Family members would all later remark how Sabrina's voice had become strange and unrecognizable, deep and husky, as if she was possessed by a demon. At this point, Elise began to attack Sophina, pulling her hair. When Ruby told them all she'd call the police and they were on their way, Sabrina shouted at her in a demonic voice. You're a whore and an adulterer. Bow down to your master. Yanni joined in, pointing at Marcus's feet as the two women shouted. Bow down to your master. Bow down to your master. Sophina held her hands skyward, exclaiming, Jesus Christ is my master. Sabrina and Lise pointed at Sophina and began chanting, Judas, 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 as they backed toward the bedroom where the children were. A desperate Sophina followed them and threw herself into the doorway as they attempted to slam the door shut. She gazed into the room to see Sabrina rummaging through a brown leather bag, the children all about her. Ethan and Aviv were to her left. Marshy was on the floor with a baby bottle. Jonathan was by the crib where one of the babies sat quietly. Ilabel just stood there. None of the children made a sound. As Sophina attempted, to push her way into the room, Kiani and Rosa came from behind and dragged her away, and the bedroom door slammed shut. As things spun out of control, 911 would be called a total of five times. It would take officers nearly a half hour to arrive. In the last of the calls, the caller said things had gotten violent and someone had a gun. And the dispatcher can be heard laughing, saying, Every time we transfer the calls, they get more embellished. Now someone has a gun, 
I think it's embellished. So get up, get, get, get down. 911's a joke in your town. <laughs> oh, Marcus pleading for calm. You knew I was going to sing at some I point. I did. I did. I didn't expect it to be now. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Marcus was pleading for calm. The girls were struggling, and he managed to sit them down and talk. By the way, this was all recorded by one of the male chaperones on the lawn. So we know exactly what was said. Marcus lets Safina plead her case, and she says, You know Dad is still having children with his own girls. To which Kiani says, That's so stupid. And Rosa replies, You're just jealous. And Sophina reiterates that she is not leaving without her son. It's at this point that Rosemary Solario, Sophina, and Ruby's birth mother show up. I know, guys, this family tree is confusing as hell. Just bear with us. So Rosemary's screaming at Sophina and Ruby to leave and starts throwing punches at the girls. All hell is breaking loose. And other family members are asking, where the fuck are the cops at? Good question. Well, finally, a police cruiser arrives and an officer, Frank Nelson, approaches, trying to figure out what's going on. Sophina and Ruby present the officer with their IDs and the birth certificates of their children, while Marcus goes on how they're not the children's real mothers and have never lived with them. Officer Nelson explains to Marcus that if he doesn't have any paperwork, the children are going to have to go with their mothers. As an assisting officer, Benny Martinez begins to herd the crowd of family members back away from the house. At one point, the two officers make eye contact, and Nelson tells Martinez to call the sergeant. Sergeant Patrick Jackson arrives and says they're going to call Child Protective Services and have them sort this mess out. This, of course, has been Marcus' biggest fear since he began trying to breed his perfect race of vampire children. Kiani and Rosa begin whispering to Marcus, who pulls a small black pouch from his pocket and removes a small key from it, handing the key to Rosa who disappears into the house. Meanwhile, Sergeant Jackson is calling the city attorney to see if he can legally enter the house. The attorney tells him, no, they do not have legal cause to enter the house at this point. Kiani again begins whispering to Marcus, and he then goes into the house as Ruby pleads with the officers to watch him that she doesn't trust him. Ruby peers into the open door and can see Kiani barricading the bedroom with a table. Elizabeth then shows up on the scene, seeming dazed and confused. She just wanders past everyone, through the chaos and into the house. When Sophina sees that Marcus has gone into the house, she loses it and begins screaming at Officer Nelson. Marcus is going to kill the children. At this point, Elizabeth emerges, running into this yard, hollering, they're all gone. 
They're all gone. Kiani then comes out shouting at Ruby and Safina. They're gone and you're next. Ruby lets out an anguished cry, then faints, tumbling to the ground. Shots ring out and officers fall into a defensive position. Guns trained on the house. A crowd of neighbors gather in the street and officers cordon off the area with yellow crime scene tape. Ruby asks an officer, is my daughter alive? The officer tells her, we don't know yet. The SWAT team arrives and surround the house. An agonizing hour creeps by. Then at 4.47, Marcus emerges from the house. He's covered in blood and his expression is utterly emotionless. Officer Eloy Escareno was the first law enforcement officer to enter the house, followed by Officer Howard Tello, who cried, It's okay, kids. You can come out. But there was no reply. The door to the back bedroom was ajar, and Escareno entered, his shotgun drawn. The room was pitch dark and utterly silent. Escareno shone his flashlight about and was able to make out the strange sight of coffins leaning against the wall. When Officer Tello managed to find a light switch and flicked the overhead lights on, Escareno gasped, dropped his shotgun, and fell to his knees, crying out for an ambulance. The corpses were stacked in a grisly pile beside the coffins in a large pool of blood. 25-year-old Sabrina and 17-year-old Lise were at the top, covering the bodies of the children. Officer Escarino desperately felt through the pile of still warm bodies, searching for signs of life. A pulse, a moan, a gasp of breath. There was nothing. He came to an infant on the bottom and saw that, like all the others, it had been shot directly through the eye. Kneeling there before the heap of dead bodies, his hands drenched in blood, Officer Escareno broke down and wept. Officer Tello took over the grisly job of searching for life in the pile of corpses and counted five bodies. Another officer would count seven. It wasn't until crime scene investigators came on the scene that total number of deceased was realized to be nine. Some of the infants and young children were so tiny and intertwined with the other corpses that they had been overlooked. All nine of the victims had been shot through the eye. A large transport vehicle had to be called to the scene as Marcus's 300-pound frame wouldn't fit in the back of a standard cruiser, and three sets of handcuffs had to be used to fit him. While in jail awaiting trial, Guards said Marcus spent a lot of time masturbating and rubbing his ejaculate into his dreadlocks. Ugh, why'd you have to say that? 
It was all the incest and the, everything else. It just, just had to, had to get it that just one. It keeps getting grosser. Oh. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's not grosser than incest, but it's... No, yeah, the, it's just... The, 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 I have the image in oh, my mind. God. I can just see him sitting in his cell. Oh, I, I was going to say that's I'll like icing everybody. on the cake, but I hate yeah. I hate the I'm phrasing that I just chose. Icing on the cake. <laughs> Ejaculate on the dreadlocks. Oh, my yeah. God. Okay. Woo. This is intense. <laughs> the trial, the trial was a total freak show, with uh, Wesson's son, Al May, repeatedly interrupting by standing up and yelling, "I love you, Dad! I love you!" Over oh. and over. I know, buddy. Until, no, <laughs> until uh, two bailiffs had to escort him from the courtroom. Kiani took the stand to defend her father and husband. And when the prosecution pointed out that she was only 17 when her father got her pregnant, a minor, making it statutory rape, she insisted that she was 19. The prosecution saying, can't you do math? You were 18 when you gave birth. But despite the irrefutable facts, Kiani just shook her head and kept repeating, no, I was 19. Elizabeth was given complete immunity to testify for the prosecution. That's complete immunity for decades of aiding and abetting in the incestual rape and violent assaults of her own children, sisters, and nieces. Not to mention whatever conspiracy charges may have stemmed from her knowledge of the suicide murder packs that had led to the nine murders. And I'm not saying Elizabeth isn't a victim in all this as well. I mean, she had been groomed as a very young child by Marcus and literally married him at 15 years old. By the time she was 26, she'd given birth to 11 of Marcus's children. But the testimony she gave in court that she'd been given complete immunity for, it was just bizarre. and inconclusive she was either in such a profound psychological shock that she couldn't give accurate testimony or she was pretending as much over and over the judge would have to pause the trial and allow her to compose herself by taking a walk at one point having her rushed off the stand and put into an ambulance when she complained she couldn't breathe and was having chest pains though doctors could find no physical symptoms whatsoever. The prosecution, they flat out accused her of faking it. The defense argued that it was Sabrina who had committed the murders and then shot herself. Mysteriously enough, there were no fingerprints on the gun, and both Sabrina and Marcus's hands tested negative for gunpowder residue. There was a lot of arguing about liver temperatures and times of death. But that didn't sway the jury, who, after deliberating for 10 days, found Marcus guilty on all 23 counts of first-degree murder, rape, forced oral copulation, and sexual molestation, and gave him the death penalty. And he sits in San Quentin Prison's death row to this day. Oh, this case. What a doozy. Yeah, it really was. Oh, and by the way, they cut off all his dreadlocks when he got the death row. 
Oh. So he didn't make it to the rapture. They were not super sanitary anyway. <laughs> Probably because they thought he could hang himself with them. I was thinking. I mean, oh, they were like down yeah. past his knees. Oh, yeah. I guess by that time, right? Yeah. And I guess I should point out that, like Sarah had mentioned earlier, uh, the members of the Wesson family who defended him during the trial, like his son, who repeatedly yelled out, I love you, dad. And Kiani, who tried to invert math and logic to say she wasn't a minor when her father impregnated her. None of them have contact with Marcus anymore. Like any recovering members of a cult, it took years for them to finally come around and see the man for what he was. And his sons now describe him as psychotic, delusional, and narcissistic. I don't know what to say. At the end of this horrific story, except isn't it a plus that no animals were harmed in the making of this episode for once? Yay. So there's that. I know. Say what you want about Marcus, but he didn't kill any animals like so many of these scumbags do. Still makes me lose my lose my faith in humanity, which I think is the most important lesson to be had today. Don't have a lot of faith in humanity my fellow freaks, because it's a bizarre and brutal world out there and you need to be careful. But it's people like you, dear listeners, that give us here at Murder Coaster some rays of hope. Inspirational, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) And on that shiny, optimistic note, that's going to do it for today's tale of murder and mayhem, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more insanity here on Murder Coaster. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next week.